I'd like to introduce you to our guest, Dr. John Cassiopo. Mr. Cassiopo is the Tiffany and Margaret Blake Distinguished Service Professor, Director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience, and Director of the ARET Initiative at the University of Chicago. He is one of the founders of the field of social neuroscience, which concerns the neuro, hormonal, and genetic mechanisms underlying the emergent structures beyond the individual organism created by social species. And his most recent book with William Patrick is entitled Loneliness, Human Nature and the Need for Social Connection. Dr. Cassiopo completed his PhD at Ohio State University. We're very pleased to welcome John Cassiopo. Thank you for joining me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. And I want to thank Zocalo for making this event possible. Sir Arthur Eddington, an astrophysicist, published a book in 1939 entitled The Philosophy of the Physical Sciences. In it, he describes a hypothetical scientist who sought to determine the size of various fish in the sea. The scientist began by weaving a two-inch mesh net and setting sail across the seas, repeatedly sampling catches measuring and recording each carefully, analyzing the results of each. After extensive sampling, the scientists returned and concluded that there were no fish smaller than two inches in the sea. The moral of Sir Eddington's analogy is twofold. First, scientific instruments are shaped by our intuitive theories of the phenomena we seek to investigate. Second, once developed, scientific expectations and instruments shape theory and data in ways more fundamental than we have assumed. What is the relevance of this to the story of loneliness? Our research findings have led me to believe that we have all made Eddington's error in the way we have thought about, studied, and tried to deal with loneliness. Historically, the scientific assumptions made about loneliness were not only that it was painful and miserable, but that it was an aversive condition with no redeeming features. All you need to do is to reflect on the last time you felt terribly lonely, and you can appreciate the intuitive nature of this characterization. But as Sir Eddington's story shows us, obvious and intuitive can sometimes be very misleading. I'm going to take a very different approach tonight to the understanding loneliness topic, perhaps appropriately given this month marks the 200th anniversary since Darwin was born. The approach I will take is grounded in evolutionary theory. I'll spend the first half of the talk discussing why human connection came to be especially important to human beings. I'll then discuss a different way of thinking about loneliness and explain how and why chronic loneliness can be harmful to health and well-being. And I hope to leave ample time at the end so we can discuss any specific questions you have about the topic. For at least the past century, however, we've celebrated the power and intellectual might of the solitary genius. Charles Darwin argued that the difference between humans and other species, as great as it is, is one of degree and not of kind. Thomas Edison brought electrical power to individual households, transforming night into day. Henry Ford introduced the mass production of automobiles, changing how we transported, and consequently, how and where we lived and worked. Albert Einstein surmised a relationship between energy and matter, opening a universe of, pop of possibilities that previously was virtually unimaginable. It is understandable in this context that the cultural focus moved from the social group, the family, the neighborhood, the village, to the autonomous individual. By the latter half of the 20th century, the dominant metaphor for the human mind was the solitary computer. 
complete with inputs, filing and memory systems, limited processing resources, and output devices. Evolutionary theory itself focused on the gene and by extension, on the individual whose purpose for a living was to survive long enough to reproduce. Milton Friedman influenced economic theory and government policies for decades by positing that people, being fundamentally rational, are motivated first and foremost by self-interest, and the adage of all for one and one for all was supplanted by the notion that what's good for me is good for society. Moving from an economy based on manufacturing to one based on consumerism further fueled a focus on the preferences of the autonomous individual. One can certainly find evidence in humans and in other species for the Hobsonian view of life being selfish, brutish, and short. Sardines, for existence, swim in what appears to be synchronized schools until approached by a predator, at which time they dart about so chaotically that they create what appears to be a large, tumultuous ball with a mind of its own. The rule governing the behavior of this dynamic and adaptive collective action is an entirely selfish one. Each fish is driven to swim to the middle, where they're the least likely to be eaten by the hungry predator. Sardines were born with the capacity to swim, find food, and avoid predators. If they survive long enough to reproduce, their genes will be part of the gene pool for future generations. Emergent structures, like the sardine ball, evolved because genes that compelled the sardine to swim to the middle in the presence of predators were more likely to survive long enough that they reproduced, thereby contributing these genes to the species. According to the National Science Foundation's Tree of Life project, there are anywhere between 5 million and 100 million species on Earth, only 2 million of which have been identified thus far by science. Most of these species are either born with the capacity to find sustenance and avoid predation sufficiently well that some survive to reproduce, or they're born in such large numbers that some live long enough to reproduce. It is the ability of such organisms to reproduce that determines what genes constitute the gene pool for future generations of that species. These genes, in turn, shape the structure and function of the organisms that constitute the species. This led George Williams a half century ago to suggest that traits which benefit the group at the expense of the individual would evolve only if the process of group selection was great enough to overcome the selection within groups. He further suggested that group selection is nearly always weak, so group-related adaptations do not exist. Richard Dawkins popularized the notion that traits which evolve are adaptive at the gene level through his use of the metaphor of the selfish gene. Genes serve their own selfish interests in the sense that whatever contributions made by a gene to an organism's structure and function would be passed on to the next generation if and only if the gene made its way to the gene pool. Survival of the fittest now had a biological basis. Now, Charles Darwin didn't know that the mechanism through which structures and behaviors evolved were genetic. But an important component of his original theory was the notion of the survival of the fittest. He was also aware and somewhat puzzled by the observation that many organisms made themselves less fit so that the group might survive. And he wrote curiously about what he termed mutual aid. Subsequent generations of evolutionary biologists realized that even though genes might act as if selfish, the vehicle responsible for the transport of these genes to the gene pool occasionally extended beyond the individual or parent or even to kin to unrelated members of groups. 
more specifically, the various superorganismal structures formed by social organisms represent naturally selected levels of organization that extend beyond individuals. Consider, for example, the emperor penguin. Emperor penguins typically reside near the food source of squid, shoaling fish, and small crustaceans, but in early winter, they gather into breeding colonies up to 60 miles inland in April and May. They search for their mate from the previous year, go through a courtship ritual, and then mate. The female lays only one egg in May or June, which coincides with the start of the bitter Antarctica winter. The emperor penguins are thought to have developed this unusual winter breeding behavior to permit the chick to grow to independence the following summer when food is plentiful. Ensuring the chick survives that long is a collective enterprise, however. The birthing of the egg leaves the mother nearly depleted, so she must return to the seaside to feed while the father assumes responsibility for the incubation of the egg during the winter. An egg from an emperor penguin can easily freeze if left exposed in the harsh winter conditions of the Antarctica. So the transition of the egg from beneath the warmth and safety of the mother to atop the feet and under the fold of feathered abdominal skin of the father requires a bit of coordination on the part of the two. Even this is not sufficient for the genes of this pair to find their way into the gene pool. The conditions of the Antarctica winters are among the least hospitable on Earth, with winter temperatures dipping below minus 60 degrees centigrade and winds bursting up to 120 miles per hour. To protect themselves from the wind and cold, the male penguins huddle together, spending much of their time sleeping to conserve energy and apparently taking turns on the brutal outer circle of the huddle. In this environment, survival of the chicks depends on the shared warmth and protection of the superorganismal structure of the huddle, not the individual. The group as a whole is more likely to survive if each penguin and chick is allowed to spend time in warmth and protection of an inner circle, which means selective pressures exist to promote cooperation to maintain the integrity of the huddle. More generally, for species born to a period of abject dependency, the genes that find their way into the gene pool are not defined solely by the likelihood that an organism will reproduce, but also by the likelihood that the offspring of the parent will live long enough to reproduce. As in the case of the emperor penguins, one consequence is that selfish genes evolve to promote reciprocal social behaviors and superorganismal structures. The environmental challenges facing emperor penguins, as daunting as they are, pale by comparison to the complexities facing the human species. Robin Dunbar's social brain hypothesis posits that the social complexities and demands of primate species contributed to the rapid increase in neocortical connectivity and intelligence. The notion is that deducing better ways to find food, avoid perils, and navigate territories has adaptive value for large mammals. But the complexities of these ecological demands are no match for the complexities of social living, which include learning by social observation, recognizing the shifting status of friends and foes, anticipating and coordinating efforts between two or more individuals, using language to communicate, reason, teach, and deceive others, orchestrating relationships ranging from pair bonds and families to friends, bands, and coalitions, navigating complex social hierarchies, social norms, and cultural developments, subjugating self-interest to the interests of the parabond or group, 
in exchange for the possibility of long-term benefits, recruiting sanctions in the form of support from others to, to sanction those who violate the group norms, and doing this across frames of time that stretch from the distant past to multiple possible futures. Consistent with this hypothesis, cross-species comparisons have shown that the evolution of large, metabolically expensive brains is more closely associated with social than ecological complexity. We like to view ourselves as rugged individualists, but Homo sapiens are born to the most prolonged period of abject dependency of any animal. For the species to survive, human infants must instantly engage their parents in protective behavior, and the parents must care enough for their offspring to nurture and protect them. Infants do not elicit nurturance and protection from caregivers or if caregivers are not motivated to provide such care over an extended period of time, the infants perish along with the genetic legacy of the parents. This ontogenetic dependency mirrors our evolutionary heritage. Hunter-gatherers did not have the benefit of natural weaponry, armor, strength, flight, stealth, or speed relative to many other species. Human survival depended on collective abilities not on individual might. Genes which promote behaviors that increase the odds of the gene surviving are perpetuated. One implication of this simple insight is that evolution is as much about competition between genes as it is about competition between species. The genetic constitution of Homo sapiens derived not solely from an individual's reproductive success, but from the success of one's children to reproduce. Hunter-gatherers who did not form social connections and did not feel the compulsion to return to share food or defense with their offspring may have been more likely to survive to procreate again, but given the long abject dependency of human infants, their offspring were going to be less likely to reproduce and their genes didn't make it into the gene pool. The result is their genes not only wouldn't make it into the gene pool, but there's a selection pressure for the development of information processing operations that contribute to the formation and maintenance of these social connections. Operations like attachment, synchrony, communication, compassion, empathy, mind reading, deception, the detection of deceit, cooperation, group formation, benevolence, altruistic punishment, and yes, loneliness. It is a gene that's obligatorily selfish, not the human brain. Humans create immersion organizations beyond the individual, structures that range from dyads, families, and groups to cities, civilizations, and international alliances. These superorganismal structures evolved hand-in-hand -hand with genetic, hormonal, and neural mechanisms to support them because the consequent social behaviors helped humans survive, reproduce, and care for their offspring sufficiently long that they too reproduced. The striking development of an increased connectivity within the cerebral cortex, especially the frontal and temporal regions of the human brain, are key evolutionary developments in this regard. The cerebral cortex is a mantle between 2.6 and 16 billion neurons, with each neuron receiving 10,000 to 100,000 synapses in its dendritic trees. The human frontal and temporal lobes together constitute 55% of the cerebral cortex, rendering the sensory motor cortices that dominate most mammalian brains to minority status in the human brain. The expansion of the frontal regions in the brain is responsible largely for the human capacities for reasoning, planning, performing mental simulations, performing theory of mind, and the ability to exert the self-control necessary to work together for a common good. 
the temporal regions in turn play essential roles in social perception and communication. The means for guiding behavior through the environment emerged prior to neocortical expansion. These evolutionary older systems also play a role in human information and processing and behavior, albeit in a more rigid and stereotyped fashion. The intricately interconnected neocortical regions of the frontal lobes are involved in self-control, which permits the modulation of these older systems and the overriding of hedonistic impulses for the benefit of the group. Evidence across human history provides overwhelming support for the supposition that humans are fundamentally social. The average person in contemporary times has been estimated to spend nearly 80% of waking hours in the company of others, most of which is spent in small talk with known individuals. These estimates have been supported in more detailed assessments using the day reconstruction method to determine how people spend their time and how they experienced events in their lives. The time spent with friends, relatives, spouse, children, clients, and coworkers is rated on average as more inherently rewarding than time spent alone. Respondents in these studies indicate that their most enjoyable activities are intimate relations and socializing, activities that promote bonding and high-quality relationships. These results are also consistent with survey data. When asked what's necessary for happiness, the majority of respondents rate relationships with friends and families as the most important, although we certainly don't act like that in some cases. Social isolation, in contrast, is not only associated with lower levels of happiness and well-being, but with broad-based morbidity and mortality. Importantly, humans are such meaning-making creatures that perceived social isolation is a more important predictor of adverse outcomes on human health and well-being than is objective social isolation. In an illustrative study, Caspian colleagues found that perceived social isolation in adolescence and young adulthood predicted how many cardiovascular risk factors were elevated in young adults. And the number of developmental locations at which participants felt socially isolated further predicted the number of elevated risk factors in young adults. Perceived social isolation is known more colloquially as loneliness, which is in early scientific investigations was depicted as a chronic distress without redeeming features. Given human survival depends on the inclusion and participation in a social group, there's an adaptive benefit to having the strong and aversive response of loneliness when a member's inclusion might be in jeopardy. Just as there's a benefit to having aversive signals for other conditions critical for their survival. Hunger, thirst, and pain, for instance, have evolved as aversive signals to prompt an organism to change their behavior in a way that protects the individual and promotes the likelihood that their genes will make it into the gene pool. The social pain of loneliness has evolved similarly to serve as a signal that one's connections to others are weakening and to motivate the repair and maintenance of the connections people need for their health and well-being. Ostracism or objective isolation in most species is associated with an early death. In humans, the chronic feeling of isolation even when the person remains among the protective embrace of others, is associated with significant mental and physical disorders. For instance, we have found loneliness to be associated with heightened resistance to blood flow throughout the body, elevated blood pressure as one ages, heightened hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortical activity as indexed by higher morning levels of stress hormones like ACTH and larger increases in the stress hormone of cortisol in the morning 
less restorative sleep through the night, altered gene expression in the nucleus of immune cells, a diminished ability to exert self-control and avoid personal temptations, increased depressive symptoms, poor health behaviors such as diet and exercise, higher peripheral biological markers of wear and tear on the body, and patterns of brain activation indicative of a weaker response to pleasant contact with people, and more attention and less perspective taking, that is more egocentrism, in response to human contact in unpleasant circumstances. Most of these findings have now been replicated by others, and additionally, loneliness has been found to be related to the progression of Alzheimer's disease, alcoholism, obesity, diminished immunity, reduction in independent living, suicidal ideation and behavior, and poorer overall health. The human species has evolved the capacities for and motivation to form and maintain bonds and relationships with other individuals. And this ability has been extended to non-human and imaginary agents through the magic of anthropomorphic thinking. Xenophanes in 6th century BC was the first to use the term anthropomorphism when describing the similarities between religious agents and believers, noting that Greek gods were invariably fair-skinned and blue-eyed, whereas African gods were invariably dark-skinned and dark-eyed. And he joked that cows would surely worship gods that were stunningly cow-like. <laughs> anthropomorphism is a process of inference about an unobservable characteristics of a non-human agent. And when people feel isolated from others, they're more likely to form imaginary social connections through anthropomorphism. Humans have also evolved the capacities for and motivation to form and maintain bonds and relationships with superorganismal structures, ranging from pair bonds and families to nations and global communities. Team spirit, school spirit, and national spirit are familiar notions. Although these feelings of connections to collectives may refer to invisible influences, such influences are no less open to rigorous scientific investigation than are the invisible influences of gravity and magnetic flux. In the cases of team, school, and national spirit, they represent a specific form of social connection between an individual and a specific emergent superorganismal structure. These perceived social connections and the associated social identities they carry are abstractions that can transcend time and space. People may feel a connection with their ancestors or family heritage, even if they're the only remaining descendant, just as people can perceive personal connections with television characters, celebrities, and unseen spiritual entities with whom they do not actually interact. A potent component of spirituality, regardless of specific religion, is the feeling of a connection and purpose that comes from forming a relationship with a higher being. These feelings may have evolved as a byproduct of our selfish genes and social brains quite independently of the existence of any such being. That is, the social connections formed by humans can reflect ideological similarities as well as genetic similarities. And the pursuit of these social connections with more abstract entities may contribute to our search for meaning in higher beings or organizations, whether or not any entity exists. As individuals and as collectives, humans are capable of seeking the solutions that benefit others, particularly others to whom they feel connected. However, people are also subject to pursuing their own narrow self-interest. It's in our genetic heritage. The cascade of individual behaviors can lead to a better world, to dispirited anarchy, or to inflamed tribal chaos. 
an important and unrealized role of family values, social norms, legal systems, government policies, religious institutions, and civic programs is to tilt this bias away from narrow self-interest. The need for such design features and programs has been made disturbingly clear by the cost of recent Wall Street shenanigans that prove beneficial to financial institutions and new homeowners in the short term, but nothing less than calamitous for all by late 2008. Societies do not achieve beneficial and sustainable levels of social connection and social harmony simply by offering good intentions and warm hugs in the form of financial bailouts. All civilizations have informal and formal systems to promote social over self-interest, including taboos, norms, moral codes, and laws. As in the broken windows theory of policing, small infractions matter because they set a negative tone that cascades into more negative behavior in more and more people. If it seems okay to throw trash here, more and more people will throw trash. If we think everyone cheats on his or her taxes, we're more likely to cheat. If we think everyone is paying his or her fair share, we're more likely to pay what we owe. Without effective regulation and social disapprobation, society devolves into crack houses, CEO scandals, political corruption, and Enron collapses. This is an important challenge for social institutions and government policies to permit local determination while also ensuring that the resources for the greater good of others are not exploited through the self-interest of those who govern. In conclusion, I began this talk with a reference to the individual genius of Darwin, Edison, Ford, and Einstein. The stories of these four stand out, not because they were isolates, however, but because they inspired others to follow, and together their efforts led to the improvement in the quality of the lives of so many. The genius of Nikola Tesla shone equally brightly, but his eccentric and isolated lifestyle curtailed his overall contributions to humanity. I referred also at the beginning of the talk to the dominant metaphor of the solitary computer for the scientific study of the human mind during the latter half of the 20th century. Computers today, however, are massively interconnected devices with capabilities that extend far beyond the resonant hardware and software of a solitary computer. The human brain has provided wireless broadband interconnectivity for our species for many thousands of years. Just as today's computers have capacities and processes that are transduced through, but extend far beyond the hardware of a single computer, the human brain has evolved to promote social and cult cultural capacities and processes that are transduced through, but extend far beyond a solitary brain. To understand the full capacity of humans, one needs to appreciate not only the memory and computational power of the brain, but its capacity for representing, understanding, and connecting with other individuals. That is, one needs to recognize that we have evolved a powerful, meaning-making social brain and a fundamental human need for social connection. To quote from an African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Thank you.
Okay, thank you folks for coming out. Uh, we will now begin our Q&A portion of our lecture tonight, and we want to remind you that our event is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts, so all questions must be spoken into the microphone. Raise your hand and wait for a Sokolo staff to get to you. There's two of us going around, and if you could please state your name before your question. Also, at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, and we do appreciate any and all support. Thank you. Do you have questions? Thank you very much. My name is Christina. Um, you mentioned that Perceived social, social isolation is um, loneliness, and objective social isolation is ostracism. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? And are you sort of um, saying that loneliness is self-induced? Is self no, I'm sorry to, uh, for that confusion. Ostracism is simply one form of objective isolation. That's a form of isolation when, it's been, when an individual is rejected by the group. Um, objective isolation we define as the absence of contact with others, the absence of contact with friends and family, being single, not having religious affiliations, not having voluntary associations. That's how sociologists, epidemiologists have defined objective isolation. You can also define it in terms of the number of social roles, the number of human contacts you actually have. Not too surprisingly, if you look around, we have lots of actual contact. And what we find is that it's not the presence of others, it's the perceived isolation or loneliness that's more powerful. And I'll give you two quick examples to kind of underscore why perception is so important. One is, um, let's take a writer. Um, as you might imagine, I spend some long hours writing, and I, I have to be alone when I write. And um, I never feel lonely while I write because I have... Uh, friends and colleagues, the work about which I've been speaking is the work of really a, a large number of, of scientific colleagues and students, and I have all of them in my head, and they're a wonderful group. I have an audience in my head to whom I'm writing, and so it's anything but a lonely act, uh, even though objectively I'm by myself. Um, take the young uh, man or woman who's going from high school to college, leaving friends and family behind for the first time as the alternative example, they are in their college dorm and classes around more people than they were when they were in high school. And yet that first couple of weeks at college are typically very lonely times because they have to reconnect. All of their former relationships have been severed. And so there's a case where objective isolation is actually quite low, but subjective isolation is quite intense. And so that's one of the reasons why it's not the objective, but the subjective that's so important. Hi. Um, my brother is a biologist, and when I uh, have tough times, sometimes I talk to him. And once I was asking him, you know, oh, Josh, you know, what do I do about uh, X, Y, or Z problem? And he pointed out to me that in order to propagate our genes, we don't have to be happy all the time. We only have to be happy some of the time and happy enough to pass our genes on, and that's all we really need. So, <laughs> <laughs> So this is my brother's way of telling me, you know, don't expect to be happy all the time. But, um, but I was wondering what you had to say about that, <laughs> <laughs> about happiness. Well, and one thing I can observe is that talking to your brother probably helps. We looked at what made people happy as part of a longitudinal study that we're conducting. And uh, one of the very powerful determinants is the frequency of contact with friends and family. So this probably is helpful for you as well. But basically, loneliness makes you uh, unhappy. So if I look at how happy you are today, and I look at how lonely you are today, and I'm predicting how happy will you be a year from now. And the first thing I do is I try to predict based on how happy you are today. All right. Now I say, is there anything left to predict? 
Loneliness will predict additional variance in how happy. If you're lonely, you'll be sadder a year from now than you are today. If you're very well connected, you're really happy with your relationships, the likelihood is a year from now you'll be even happier. And so it may be that you don't need it to procreate, but why not? Why would you not choose to be happy all the time, or at least as often as you can? Um, yeah, I have a question about, do you think the internet is increasing our perceived loneliness or helping other people not feel lonely? It's complicating our understanding of loneliness. It, because it actually does both. So if you look, there was a study done where they randomly assigned uh, people to have access to Internet, and this was early in the, um, in the Internet age. And what they found was having access to the Internet increased loneliness. The reason it increased loneliness was people sacrificed face-to-face -face interactions for net interactions. And that's a little bit like eating celery when you're hungry. It feels good momentarily, but there isn't the same nutrients. Now, on the other hand, there's... <laughs> There are studies that show if you are isolated because of a physical ailment or because of a stigma, the net has increased feelings of connectedness because now they have others who are like them that they can reach out and for the first time talk to and have an understanding. They can confide. So it really depends how is it being used. If it's being used to promote contact and interactions, if I'm using it to stay in touch with friends and family so that I return, I can pick up right where I left off, then it's decreasing loneliness. If I'm using it instead as a replacement, I'm you know, working on getting that 4,000th friend on Facebook, <laughs> it probably is increasing. So it really, that's an, it really depends how it's being used. Hi, my name is Saida. I have a question. From a cultural standpoint, did you come across any research on different cultures and how well they are adapted, or how well they've adapted to isolation? Um, given that in the States it feels like we are more isolated than some of our other cultures around the world. Yes, there is research of that kind done, and the results, I will tell you, will surprise you until I put it in a U.S. context. Um, collectivist cultures and individualistic cultures are what was contrasted. Now, first let me define what I mean by that. My simple rule of thumb for an index of how collectivist, individualistic a culture is, is watch people eat. If you're in... Italy, how do they eat? Big bowls get passed around the table, right? Everyone's sharing. Um, China, big lazy Susan in the middle, 18 people sitting around the table. You can't eat without attending to the other 17 people or chopsticks will go flying off. So you have to be connected with each other as you eat. The United States, you do a drive-through, you ask for the Happy Meal, it's in your own little box, you sit down. <laughs> Who's more individualistic, right? Okay, so that's one way. Now you know what I mean by collectivist versus individualistic cultures. Now you can ask the question, who's the loneliest? The collectivist cultures. Now that isn't a surprise, and I'll explain why. First of all, you have to understand that just like hunger, pain, and thirst, loneliness is the exception. Most of us, most of the time, are not lonely. All of us are capable, in fact, all of us undoubtedly have experienced the pain of loneliness. It's a feature just like hunger, pain, and thirst. We've evolved this because it's adapted for us. It's good to have for our species. If you did not have physical pain or modern medicine, you would not survive because you would not know you were doing damage to your own body. Social pain, loneliness, helps us as a species because it maintains these powerful, important collectives, groups that are good for us in 
enabling us to survive and prosper in difficult circumstances. Right? But it's bad for us as individuals when we get stuck, just like it's bad for us to, be, to go long periods being hungry, thirsty, or in physical pain. That's the trick. So now we're talking only about those individuals who temporarily are feeling lonely because perhaps of bereavement or distancing from friends and family. Well, the reason collectivist cultures feel lonelier is because the norms are to be connected. And so looking around and finding yourself disconnected is an even more painful episode than if you're used to others and yourself not being connected. And I'll give you within our culture a case in point. Around the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, those are holidays where we celebrate friends and family. If you're isolated on those particular days, your feeling of loneliness is greater than if it's during a work day. Right? Why? Because the cultural norms for those days are that you be connected. And that's the cultural norms that exist in collectivist culture. So that's why you get the difference that you get. Hi. My name is Mina. I have a question. Did you see a physiological or emotional difference in dealing with loneliness for people who self-define themselves introverted versus extroverted? Yeah. We don't find physiological differences. That's one of the interesting things. The big difference between introverts and extroverts is how many people they need connections with in order to not feel lonely. And in both cases, it's not very many, right? For an introvert, it might take one. For an extrovert, it might take three. Something on that order. So, you know, it's surprising. People think, oh, I need to be connected with, I need to be the most popular person. That'll make me not lonely. It's actually not true. And there are many popular, popular by some standards, kids that aren't, in fact, free of feelings of loneliness. So it's having deep, high-quality relationships, not the number of relationships. Introverts and extroverts do differ in how many such relationships make them feel well-loved. But uh, it's, and that's where it's not the physiological differences given that they feel lonely that we find the differences in. We, th we thought we might find that. We did not. Question to your left. Yes. Actually, she took my question, but I'll throw a different one at you. Okay. All right. Um, collectivism, how does that fly in? Does that imply that diversity is a lonely experience? We celebrate diversity. Yes. That seems that we celebrate loneliness. Well, I actually have come to be a real fan of loneliness. Let me just first say, just as if... <laughs> I mean, if you think about what our species would be like without loneliness, it would not be nearly as endearing a species. I honestly think loneliness, which compels us to form these connections and bond with others, gives us what we call humanity. And if we didn't have that loneliness, we wouldn't be as human. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a recent news event to make the point. We take this for granted. We have enormous capacities to connect that we pay no attention to. And we have it as an expectation of our species, and we are completely unaware of it. Captain Sully Sullenberger brought down a plane in the Hudson River, saving all passengers on board. Now, this was something of a miracle, certainly a heroic um, uh, achievement by this captain. Um, and we recognize and have lauded him, I think appropriately, because it's not in our species' inherent nature to be able to land a big piece of metal when it's falling straight to, to the ground. But he wasn't sufficient for those passengers to survive. It was necessary, but not sufficient. 
there were a number of commercial vessels on the Hudson River who were pursuing their, if you will, selfish interests. And when that ship hit the water, they abandoned their self-interests and went to the aid of those passengers with alacrity and all survived because of that. And nobody even noticed. They did it without any request, without any payment, without any recognition, and we haven't noticed it because that's who we are as a species. We are not inherently satisfied with being selfish creatures. And so I think if we can transcend, to the extent that we can transcend differences and see the strength of those diversities, we're all stronger as a result. Our big ability is collectively, we creatively adapt, and that has given us no geographical limitation on this earth. We're the only species for whom that can be said. Uh, what uh, gender difference is there for tolerance of uh, loneliness? Now I'm wondering, if, uh, framing it in terms of uh, hunter-gatherer theory, where yeah. the, uh, the male hunter would need to be uh, out alone in order not to scare away the prey, and women gatherers, they're more social, and they're therefore less yes. tolerant of uh, loneliness? Yes. yes, it's an interesting question. So let me, there's a couple different answers. I'll try to put it together in a fairly short form. Uh, when you look over large populations, sometimes you find men more lonely, sometimes you find women more lonely. When you look across all the studies together, there seems to be no gender difference in absolute level of loneliness. Your question is really very good, though. What I haven't told you is, what does loneliness look like in the head? Not how do you think about it, but how do I think about it? And let me give you an example. If we look at this room, there's three dimensions, right? There's width, there's height, there's depth. If I asked you about a room, you'd tell me contents. But if I analyzed everybody's descriptions, I would find what was common were those three dimensions. I can ask about relationships, connections with others, and indeed we have found three dimensions in all those mental representations. Now we get content. We get rooms described, if you will. But what we see are three kinds of connection. First, we call intimate connectedness. This is the presence of others affirming who you would like to be as a person. The best predictor of where you fall on that is marital status. But unmarried people who have a very good friend, someone in whom they can confide, can also be high in intimate connectedness. The second is relational connectedness or isolation. Relational connectedness is all face-to-face -face relationships. And when most people think about loneliness, that's the only component they're thinking about. Right? The best predictor of that turns out to be frequency of contact with friends and family. The third is collective connectedness. Collective connections. It is these social entities, these superorganismal structures to which we are connected, like school spirit. If you recall, right after 9-11, that horrific event led to a feeling of harmony and identity, shared identity in America that was so profound that we were all hearing about it in the media. It affected how we treated each other, how we felt about each other, bringing us all together despite what otherwise would have been seen as differences among us, right? That's a collective identity of being Americans that was made salient by that horrible event, right? Now, the gender difference question. Men and women, young adults, old adults, doesn't matter of ethnicity, those three dimensions are the same in the minds of individuals. But what differs is how big, how weighted those dimensions are. The relational connectedness is especially important for women. I like to think about this as I never understand, or at least didn't understand, my wife's love for girlfriends. 
Why does she need girlfriends? Her girlfriends are really important to her, right? On the other hand, she might leave some Sunday and look down, and I'm sitting by myself in front of my TV going, go Cubs, this year, go Chicago Cubs, right? <laughs> and she's, <laughs> she's also, you know, sees me as an isolate, and I'm sitting there, oh, no, I'm with my team, I'm with my tribe, I'm with my other hunter-gatherers. <laughs> That's where we found the gender difference. Hi, I'd like you to just elaborate a little bit more about how you compared having loneliness with, um, for instance, high cortisol or high cardiac disease. And, and, and then you also said with um, lack of exercise and diet. Right. Well, lack of exercise and diet leads to high, yes. you know, an increase in cardiac disease. Yes. So, I mean, how does that collaborate? Yeah, no, it's a great question. We have found uh, in young adults higher vascular resistance, but not differences in health behaviors. Now, as you probably well know, Framingham studies show that vascular resistance leads to increases in blood pressure in older adults. And so we've been tracking these things over time. And we find that the increased vascular resistance and blood pressure are independent of the differences in exercise and health behavior and diet. So we've, we've checked on that to see to what extent were they playing a role. And there's a direct route as well as a mediated route. The other interesting feature is uh, early in the epidemiologic research on isolation and, and uh, health, the assumption was isolated individuals didn't have others around to tell them to take care of themselves. Get some sleep. You're looking fat. Go get some exercise. Stop drinking so much, right? Stop smoking. You're sticking up the house. If you don't have friends or family, that isn't there. So you're able to uh, engage in more nefarious health behaviors. And of course, that's bad for your health in the long term. That was an easy explanation. It turns out that that plays a minor role. When epidemiologists have tried to quantify that, the health behaviors do contribute. Don't get me wrong. But it isn't accounting for the entire result. And so we've been looking for what the rest of the variance is due to. In our longitudinal research, we've looked at these health behaviors and how they're changing over time. But we've also measured self-control. Loneliness impairs your ability to control your impulses. This is reasonable. Loneliness is a miserable state. So you've had a miserable day. You come home. There's that delicious-looking chocolate cake. And there's the health club card. Which are you going to do? <laughs> and so we measured self-regulation as well as the health behaviors and social control. We asked the individuals who was, you know, were people there encouraging them to engage in better health behavior? And we asked specific questions, stopping smoking, reducing weight. And what we found was it was the self-regulation, not the social control, that was mediating the health behaviors themselves. So that was a very different insight. We have a question here to your right. Yes. This will be the last question of the night. Anyone who still has questions for our guest tonight can speak with him further at the reception. We welcome you to join us. Thank you. Hi. Um, you mentioned earlier about infants and their uh, connections with the mother. I'm just wondering, um, in regard to the recent <coughs> story about the woman who has now 14 children and eight all the same age, yes. will those children in any possible way get enough emotional connection to the mother? Would she have time? I can't answer in that individual case, obviously. Um, what I can say is um, early attachment matters, but one of the surprising effects in our own research is that we have been doing, we have looked both cross-sectionally, which means going across individuals, and longitudinally. 
And I fully expected that we would see much larger differences in loneliness and the effects of loneliness looking at, quote, lonely and non-lonely people rather than looking at you and me when we feel lonely or we don't feel lonely. What my surprise has been is that the effects we've seen are nearly as large within subject as between subject, which means, yes, having a difficult early childhood may make your life difficult, but it's something more akin to what we can all go through. It really does seem to have been this evolved signal to correct our behavior, not you know, so that it's more collective, not something that uh, was unfortunate early in our childhood history. And I find that in some ways to be encouraging because it means it's something we can do something about. Thank you, everyone. Thank you again for coming out. Uh, for upcoming events, you can check SokoloPublicSquare.org. Welcome you to check it out, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thank you.